Okay, so here, here's a question for you. Um, what does it mean to be human? What is a human being? How do you answer that question? I know it's, it's a little bit of an odd question to be asking because, of course, we're all human beings here this morning, so we all know what a human being is, right? Um, I, I get up every morning and I do it every day. We're all kind of experts at this, right? Um, but as is often the case with these things, um, the moment you try to define something, things get a little bit nebulous, and it actually turns out it's quite a difficult question to answer. What does it mean to be human? So, so um, why am I asking this rather odd and awkward question uh, this morning? Well, two reasons. First of all, it's a question at the heart of our culture. It is also the question at the heart of Colossians. It's the question at the heart of our culture. It is also the question at the heart of Colossians. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, let's, uh, let's start with our culture first and then we'll move on to Colossians in a moment. What does it mean to be human? It's a question at the heart of our culture. Our culture is a culture that demands its rights. There has never been a culture or generation that demands its rights the way we do. The world has never seen anything like it. We talk about it all the time. Women's rights, children's rights, reproductive rights, rights of the unborn, gay rights, transgender rights, immigrant rights, prisoners' rights. Right? We talk about it all, all day long. And all of these rights are subsets, if you like, of this larger category we call human rights. And there it is. Right? The question lurking behind all of our talk of rights is the question, what does it mean to be human? Because every single time we demand our rights, the demand can be made of us, define human. Now, our culture has a fascinating response to this question. Under the influence of existentialism, our culture says, well, actually, there, there is no definition of what it means to be human. Humanity is defined by the decisions and choices that it makes. In other words, if, if you make a decision to live a certain way, if I make a decision to, to act or live in a certain direction, then we're saying right here, right now, this is now what it means to be human. It, this is why the, the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he says, uh, when we choose, we choose for all mankind. Right? If, if humanity is defined by the decisions that it makes, then when we choose... We choose for all mankind. There are no human beings as such. Perhaps this is a better way of saying it. There are only human becomings. Right? You can, there's no outside standard which you can shove people up against and measure. Are they being more or less? Are they being more or less human? We can't do that. No, no, no. Don't you define humanity for me. We'll define humanity. We have the freedom to define humanity for ourselves. We will define humanity as we go. Now, look. Every culture has its taboos. You know, things you just can't talk about in public or in polite company, or maybe never, right? Just subjects which must never be broached. Every culture has its taboos. That's nothing new. This is one of ours. You see, on the one hand, we can talk about our rights and the many different subsets of human rights all day long, and we do. And on the other hand, we can also talk about our freedom to define humanity for ourselves as we go, and we do. But what you must never do is bring these two ideas together in the same sentence. That's taboo. You must, because a culture that demands its rights as loudly as and emphatically as we do, but at the same time, at the same time becomes profoundly aware that there is no definition of what it means to be human, 
is liable to come undone. The moment you say, look, we're free to define humanity for ourselves, there isn't, in the absence of any definition, we can define humanity as we go, the moment you say something like that, it leaves all of our human rights in a very precarious position. Now, for those of you who, this is maybe a little bit abstract, for those of you who, who want to make this a little bit more concrete, let me do that for you right now. In the uh, 1930s in Germany, a group of people decided we're going to define humanity as we go. We will define humanity for ourselves. And suddenly, six million Jewish people found themselves defined as something less than human. And they're loaded onto trains. That is what it looks like. So what does it mean to be human? It is a question at the heart of our, whether the culture acknowledges this broadly speaking or not, it is a question at the heart of our culture. And if our culture were to take it seriously for more than five seconds, it could produce a massive cultural crisis. It could produce a massive cultural upheaval of the likes we've never seen before. It's a question at the heart of our culture. It is also the question at the heart of Colossians. Because it's in this letter that Paul lifts up this question of what does it mean to be human. He turns it in the light so we can see it from many different angles. Now, I, I, want to, I do want to stop for a second and, and just acknowledge that this is... Um, a very different question than the church has been asking the culture for a very long time now. I mean, for decades, maybe longer. The church has been asking a whole different set of questions of the surrounding culture. We've been asking questions like, um, what happens when you die? If you die tonight, will you go to heaven? What is your immediate post-mortem experience going to be? Um, if, if you, uh, do, do you know what your eternal condition is going to be? The church has been asking those kinds of questions for a very, very long time now. In fact, I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I was agnostic, then I became a Christian, and I was handing out in my zeal Christian tracts on the streets in, in, in Bristol. And, uh, in order, and it had exactly those kinds of questions, those kinds of concerns in the tract. So in order to brace myself for this really absurd thing I was doing, talking to the British public about God, I, I would walk up to people and say, excuse me, I'm one of those obnoxious religious nutters, and I'd like to give you one of these. <laughs> and, uh, and people would laugh, and they'd politely take one. But I always remember this, this one guy, he, he flicked through it very quickly, and very quickly surmised what this was all about. And he, he handed it back to me, and he said, nah, he said, I'm more interested in something that can help me in this life. I'm more interested in something that can help me in this body. That's what he said. I want something that helped me in this life, in this body. And he handed it back. So, so but what can I do? At that time, the, the church at large had trained me to see the gospel through this lens, to understand the New Testament through this lens. And so I ended up in lots of kind of dead-end discussions, discussions that went nowhere. Look, as a church, my, my hope and ambition for Trinity Heights is that we will avoid these kinds of dead-end discussions. We won't end up in these cul-de-sacs where we go nowhere with the conversation. Okay, so, so here's my suggestion. Okay? And it, it is just my suggestion, so if you want to ignore me, you can. You're free to do that. Okay? But here, here's my suggestion. Can we put these questions about life after death and what's your immediate post-mortem experience and do you know you're going to have... Can we just give that a rest? Can we just put that aside? Look, obviously, if someone wants to discuss that, have at it, right? If they want to talk about it, have go at it. But uh, other than that, 
Um, my, my suggestion is let's put it aside for now and let's start asking the far more interesting question, the far more compelling question, not just for us, but for the, the culture, surrounding culture. And that is this question, what does it mean to be human? Because it is the question at the heart of our culture. It is the question at the heart of scripture. I know with all the emphasis the church has had in year, recent years that, that it may not seem that way. You know, how could that be, be the emphasis? Surely it's about life after. Actually, if you go back, go back and check all this talk about life, our immediate post-mortem experience, the scriptures hardly ever talk about it. It's almost like it's not interested. But what, what is at the heart of scripture is this question about our humanity. It's a question at the heart of scripture, and it is a question at the heart of this letter, Colossians. So the, the natural next question is, well, where, where, where exactly does this pop up in, in Colossians? Well, it comes up in a very short phrase, but it's a very significant phrase. It's significant enough for it to be used in two different places. Uh, one in the passage that Bella just read for us, which is Colossians chapter 1, where Paul points to Jesus and he says, He, he is the image of God. And then it comes up again in chapter uh, 3. where it says, being renewed in the knowledge of the image of God. So it points to Jesus, he is the image of God, and you are being renewed in the knowledge of the image of God. You know, some phrases have the power to evoke entire stories, entire kind of narrative worlds. Now let's, let's play this game for a minute, and, we'll, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, so if I say something, let's take a couple from fantasy, and then we'll take a couple from... Um, from history. So you're about to find out what a nerd I am, okay? So, so um, uh, if I say a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, what comes to mind? Star Wars. Star Wars and what else? What comes out of that? Luke Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, R2-D2, C-3PO, Darth Vader, Death Star. Okay, enough geeking out, right? Well, no, no, a little bit more. Okay, well, if I say one ring to rule them all, what would you say? What comes to mind? Yeah, okay, so Saruman, Gandalf, Orcs, yeah, Lord of the Rings. Okay, couple from history. If I say four score and seven years ago, that's just a measurement of time, right? No, 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 Stephen, you don't understand, right? You don't understand, no, that, that's not just, a, that's, that's um, Abraham Lincoln and, and, and the emancipation, North and South and slavery and civil war. It's America, right? It's just this entire narrative world is being evoked. Okay, a couple more examples. If, if I were to say one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, I'm thinking of Russian cosmonauts and space race and moon landing and hoax. No, I'm kidding, not hoax. I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Not all the way. Um, and, and, and one more. If, if I were to say 9-11, you're like, oh, that's just a date. No, Stephen, you don't understand. That's not just a date. That, that's planes flying into buildings. It's, it's 3,000 lives. It's terrorism. It's the Twin Towers. It's New York City. It, it's, it's Osama bin Laden. It's, it's, but you see what I mean? So, some phrases have the power to evoke entire narrative worlds. They invoke entire stories. They're loaded with a, a, a significance that goes way beyond the, the simple stringing together of these words into a sentence, right? Something like that is going on right here in Colossians. When Paul points to Jesus and says, he is the image of God. When he, when he does it, when he points to Jesus and says, he is the image of God, he is borrowing this phrase from somewhere else. And when he borrows this phrase from somewhere else and uses it over here, we're meant to go from over here to over there where Paul borrows this phrase from. 
And Paul's borrowing it. If it sounds familiar, he's borrowing it. Many of you will know from Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, where it says that God made humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God made humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, it was about, I guess it was about three, four, no, maybe four years ago now, I had the privilege of uh, visiting the, some churches in, in, the, in the Ukraine. And uh, we stayed with this wonderfully hospitable family, uh, Victor, Natasha, and their daughter, Ira. The food was incredible. And they took us on this walking tour of their city, Belyasirkov. And as we were walking around Belyasirkov, um, I came across this statue, and I had to take a photo of that because it was a rare piece of history. It, it was a statue of Lenin standing on a block with this kind of hammer and sickle chiseled into the block that he was standing on, the old Soviet symbols. Um, you see, most of these statues had been torn down at the end of the Soviet Union, right? That most people wanted to get rid of these images of their ideologists and rulers who had controlled their lives for decades, understandably. So they tore them down. That's why I say it was a pretty rare piece of history to kind of come across this. So I took this, this photo of it. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Um, these statues, the further away from Moscow you got, the further out from Moscow you got, the more of these statues you would find, not less, the more you would find. You see, if you lived in Moscow, the closer you were to the Kremlin, to the seat of power, well, the chances were you may get to see one of these guys in the flesh. So the chances are that you might see them in a parade or something, something like that. Um, you see, these statues served another purpose other than stroking someone's massive ego, right? Um, you've got to have a pretty big ego on you, right, to make all these statues of yourself and stash them all over the world, right? But apart from that, they served another purpose. These statues made in the image of their ideologists and rulers said, let me introduce you. This is your ruler. Don't forget who's in charge. The same can be said of uh, the Roman emperor statues. Whenever the archaeologists dig up statues of the Roman emperor, the different Caesars, they don't actually find them in Rome, very rarely. They dig them up further out. Again, the same principle applies. You're in Rome, you could go to the circus, you could see the Caesar in his box, you could wave to him, and he wouldn't wave back, but you, know, you, you knew who he was, no introduction needed. Paul points to Jesus, he says he, he is the image of God. And when he does that, he's evoking this story right here in Genesis chapter 1, which is we were made in God's image. You see, like those statues of the Roman emperor or of Lenin, well, like those statues, we are God's statues. We are God's living statues. We are supposed to carry God's image, reflecting his goodness, his love, his compassion, his justice, his mercy. Right? We're, we're supposed to... Now, there's a very important thing, right, right after it says that God created us in his image, we're given a command. It says, now go forth and multiply. Do any of you remember that in Genesis? It says, go forth and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Go forth and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, it's very, very important that we don't divorce these things from each other. Okay? When he says multiply, he's not saying multiply whatever the heck you feel like today. Right? He's, not, he's not saying fill the earth with whatever you want. No, no, no. 
No, he's saying multiply my image. Fill the earth with my image. Multiply my goodness. Fill the earth with my justice. Multiply my mercy. Fill the earth with my kindness. Multiply my generosity. Fill the earth with my hospitality. Multiply my grace. Fill the, right? Multiply that. Fill the earth with that. And when you do it, you'll be fulfilling the task of being human. I just want to, I want to stop there a second again, because I, I know, I know that in, in, many, in many ways we tend to define our humanity in the opposite direction, right? Here's, here's what I mean by that. When I really screw up, and, and I mean, you know, sometimes it's just so obvious I can't actually hide it like I like to, right? So, so sometimes it's just obvious and I can't hide it, so I have to fess up. And uh, I've just done something wrong, maybe cruel, unkind, it's just bad, it's ugly, right? And so you know what I often say? I'll say, well, you know, after all, I'm only... Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, okay, so you know that one. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm only human. Sometimes when I've got a friend who, who's just beating themselves up, it's over something ugly they've done, it's just bad, it's just wrong. And they're beating themselves up, they feel guilty. I'll, t- I'll, try, and, I'll try and relieve their guilt a little bit, I swash their guilty con- and I'll say, like, you know what, you're only human. We, we have this phrase, don't we? To err is human, yeah. Well, to err is human. Right? But wait a second. If to be human is to bear God's image, then our screw-ups, the ugly stuff, the bad stuff, the wrong stuff, this isn't a reflection of our humanity. This is a reflection of our utter failure at the task of being human. Now, you, you, that sounds like a very strange thing to say. How can we fail at the task of being human? To be hu- We're human. That's what we are. How can we fail? But no, no, wait, wait. If to be human is to bear God's image... If to be human is to be an image bearer. Let me just give you uh, two or three concrete examples of what this looks like. When a man walks out on his wife and kids and they're pleading with him, please don't abandon us, but he abandons them anyway. In that moment, they are failing to recognize the image of God in his wife and kids. And in that moment, he's failing to reflect what? God's love, justice, faithfulness, compassion, but he's failing to reflect God's image back to them. And if to be human is to bear God's image, well, then in that moment, he's failed at the task of being human. If, if you cut someone down, your husband, your wife, your friend, your colleague, with harsh and cutting words, words that cut to the heart, that wound, in that moment, you have failed to recognize the image of God in that person and you fail to reflect the image of God, of his love and compassion back to that person. And if to be human is to bear God's image, well, in that moment, we've failed at the task of being human. Well, one more example. When, when someone is isolated, marginalized, cut off, pushed to the side, and it's because there's a group of people who are working to marginalize, push people out, working in an in-crowd and creating cliques, in that moment, they've failed to recognize the image of God in that isolated person. They fail to reflect God's image to that person and if to be human is to bear God's image then in that moment they have failed at the task of being human that's that's what it looks like on a local level on a global scale this is why we end up talking about things like terrorism and people blowing things up in, in, in Chelsea um, and and uh, this is why uh, we talk about people trafficking and slavery and apartheid and and um, and, and this, is, this is what the sweatshops, right? These are all these dehumanizing activities. Now, it's with all of this in place. Now, 
Now we can feel the weight of Paul's words when he points to Jesus and he says, He, He is the image of God. You see, many people think when they read that, they think, oh, he's talking about Christ's divinity. He's saying that Christ is divine. No, actually, in that moment, I'm not sure that's what he's talking about at all. I think he's talking about Christ's humanity. That's what he's emphasizing. And, and please, let's get this right. Let's get this straight. He's not saying, oh, yeah, well, um, uh, he's human. Jesus is human just like us. He's human just like you and me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is far more devastating, far more uh, groundbreaking and earth-shattering than that. What he's saying is, is Jesus Christ is the first truly human being. Just to sit with that for a moment. Let that sink in. He's saying Jesus Christ is the first truly human being. From here on out, Jesus defines our humanity. From here on out, he determines what it is. He's the very definition of what it means to be human. And so we've come full circle. At the, at the beginning, right, we were talking about how can we continue to talk about all of these different rights and the many subsets of our human rights, right, sensibly, without a definition of what it means to be human? How can we go on condemning things like slavery and people trafficking and the sex trade and, uh, and, and sweatshops and all, all of these dehumanizing activities? By the way, every time I open up the New Yorker or the New York Times, I see this phrase used all the time. Dehumanization, dehumanize, dehumanizing, right? I see it all the time. You've probably noticed it too. Um, but what does that mean without a definition? Well, Paul comes along here and he says, good news, good news. Here is the truly human one. We have a definition. Here is what it, this is what it means to be human. Here is the de very definition of what it means. Here is our definition. Now, I understand, I get it, that some of you are going to be like, oh, um, actually, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that as a definition. Why does, why does Jesus get to define my humanity? I don't, you, you may be a skeptic, maybe a, a, an agnostic or an atheist here this morning, and, and, I, and I totally get that, that you might have some reservations about this. Um, so I just want to, that's why I want to finish up here with a couple of quotes from a couple of different atheists um, from two very different backgrounds, uh, philosophical. So, so some of you have heard me talk about this before. The Western philosophical tradition is divided into two. There's the continental tradition and there's the analytic tradition. And so uh, we don't have time to go into the details of why those are different. But uh, I just say that this morning so you know that they're not cherry picking, right? They come from two very different traditions of philosophy. They're both atheists, but they end up in a very similar place. Uh, the first one is Philip Kitcher. He's from the analytic tradition. He's actually the John Dewey Chair of Philosophy here at Columbia University. Last year, I had the privilege of uh, getting in to, to see uh, him in a debate. Um, some of you guys were responsible for putting that on, right? Um, and it was a really good discussion they had. And at the end of it, I had the privilege of being able to, to go up at the end and, and ask him a couple of questions. And, and one of the questions I asked him was this. What does it mean to be human? Now, he understood the importance, he understands the importance of having a definition for humanity. So here's what he said. He says, to be human is to participate in what he calls the ethical project, right? And to participate in the ethical project is this, is the ethical project is this ever-expanding circle of altruism. This ever-expanding circle of altruism. More and more altruism shown to more and more people. More and more kindness, more and more altruism shown to more and more people. To be human is to participate in that, what he calls the ethical project. Now, here's where it gets interesting. In a book by the same title, The Ethical Project, by Philip Kitcher, he says, 
He says, Jesus Christ is the greatest example of altruism. Jesus appears as the most striking example of altruism that we have in recorded history. So, so essentially what he's saying is, yeah, we need a definition of what it means to be human. He looks around, and as an atheist who has written numerous books promoting atheism, this is the best he comes up with, right? So, so he, he points to the person of Jesus, and he says, here, that's what I'm talking about. There it is. That's the definition right there. Well, perhaps he understands the same thing that the French uh, philosopher, father of deconstruction, Jacques Derrida, understands as well. He says this. He says, today the cornerstone of international law is the sacredness of man made by God, we could add, in his image. In that sense, the concept of a crime against humanity is a Christian concept. And I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian, and you could say Judeo-Christian heritage, Today, the cornerstone of international law is the sacredness of man made by God. In that sense, the concept of a crime against humanity is a Christian concept, and I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage. Let me finish with this. So do you believe, do you believe that Jesus Christ should define our humanity? <laughs> do you believe that Jesus Christ is the very definition of what it means to be human, because he is the truly human one, the one who bears God's image perfectly. He's been faithful in doing that. And because he's been, well, do you believe that? Well, that's a pretty big ask, isn't it? Because it's contingent on many different things, right? A lot of other questions, like, is there a God or not, right? It has to be a God in order for him to be the bearer of that God's image, right? That, that has, so it's contingent on a lot of other questions. And I, I would invite you to wrestle with those questions. I would love to wrestle with those questions with you. There are other people here who would gladly come alongside you and, and kick that around for a while with you. Um, but in some sense... The question of, is there a God or not, is kind of a, a secondary question uh, this morning. I know that sounds like a very odd thing for a, a pastor of a church to be saying in the first service, but, but it is. is it for the, just for this morning, can I just say it's a kind of a secondary question? Because you see, all of us are already committed. We are deeply committed to this idea of our many different rights, all of which are subsets of this human... We're profoundly committed to this concept of human rights. We're already profoundly committed to these things. So you see, whether this Judeo-Christian God character actually exists or not, please understand, he has been the source of all these things, and he may be the only way to sustain them. Having said that, let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, um, we look around and it doesn't take five minutes to keep our eyes open and we see a, a broken humanity. Failures locally in our own lives, failures on a massive scale globally to, to bear your image, to reflect you. Father, we thank you for the truly human one who has come, who defines humanity for us, and who promises as we follow him by his spirit, we'll start to renew our humanity in us, to make us image bearers once again. Father, we pray that as we meet weekly, as we grow together, we would grow more and more in our knowledge of the image of you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.